Gospel of Matthew, Sermon Series, Sermon on the Mount, fifth of six antitheses, where we're in the sermon, which is Matthew chapters 5 through 7, which is very practical, very practical instruction on how to live as a disciple of Jesus. This, and when we get into this instruction, it's, this is not instruction on how you get saved or how you perform so that Jesus loves you, okay? This is instruction for people who have been saved, who are being saved and will be saved, who have experienced the love of Christ, know Christ, and want and have been called to live uh, his way. And so I just want to qualify that, that um, yes, there are things that Jesus asks us, wants us, commands us to do and to be, but I want to put that in perspective. This is for people who have experienced the kingdom, right? This is experience who have said, Jesus, you are, you are my Lord, and I, want, I, need, I need your salvation, and I want to live for you. Um, the antitheses are these sayings where Jesus says, you have heard it said in the Old Testament, but I say to you. And with these six antitheses, he doesn't, he does not ever undermine the Old Testament or he doesn't throw the Old Testament away. He upholds the Old Testament, but intensifies it. Or he upholds it and he gets to the inner heart and meaning of the Old Testament. And that's what we're going to see again this, this morning with our text. So our text this morning is Matthew 5, 5, 38, 42, just four verses. And let me read this, uh, read this for, for us this morning. Matthew 5, verses 38 to 42. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said in the Old Testament, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, Turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God. Amen. Thank you for your word, Lord. Well, let's go and just walk through this text. It's four verses. Let's just walk through the text, take verse by verse, explain it. Remember that we need to first understand what it meant in its original context before we can apply something to our lives today. So it's kind of this two-step process, right? We're reading somebody else's mail. Gospel of Matthew was written not, not to us, but it was ultimately written for us. It was originally, originally written for Christian Jews, primarily, of the first century, about 30 years after Jesus' life, ministry, death, and resurrection. Written in a different time period. We just need to kind of talk it through a little bit, study it out, and then seek ways that we can apply it to our lives today. Thankfully, most of this readily moves quite easily from what it meant to what it means today. So just walking through the text, let's take verse 38. Verse 38. You have heard it that it was said eye for eye, and tooth for tooth. This is an Old Testament quotation. This is actually said three times in the Old Testament. It's said in Exodus 21. It's, I said it's found in Leviticus 24, and it's found in Deuteronomy uh, 19. I'm going to read to you the Old Testament quotation as it's found in Exodus 21, 22, and 27 and provide some context for the quotation. When there's an Old Testament quotation in the New Testament, 
it makes sense to go back to the original context, go back to that text in, Deuter in Deuteronomy or Leviticus or Exodus, look at it in its wider context and see what's going on there. And then after you've done that, then take a step back into the New Testament and see what Jesus or Paul or whoever is doing with it. So let's go back to the original context of this quotation, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. What we see in Exodus 21, 22, 27, and I'll read that in just a moment, is that the context is going to be about rules for the law court in regard to hitting, striking, and wounding another person. Okay? So it comes out of the co a court context or a legal context. Let's go ahead and take a look at this, Exodus 21. If people are fighting and hit a pregnant woman, okay, so two guys are brawling, there's a pregnant woman standing by, maybe a, a wife of one of the men, perhaps, and she gets hit, and she gives birth prematurely, but there is no serious injury, the offender must be fined whatever the woman's husband demands and the court allows. No, it's a court context, trying to decide in court what should happen to this, this man who wounded this pregnant woman. Verse 23, but if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Notice there's the context of our Old Testament quotation. Verse 26, an owner, going on to another um, example, another illustration, or another case, an owner who hits or strikes a male or female slave in the eye and destroys it must let the slave go free to compensate for the eye. Okay, so literally, it should be eye for eye if it was to be taken just kind of literally, right? If the slave, if the master wounds and destroys the eye of a slave here in the ancient Near Eastern context, in the Old Testament context, you would think that the slave would be able to retaliate and put out the eye of the master. But that's not what it says here. And so what we see here, it's not necessarily to be taken, not necessarily to be taken literally. Let's see if we can get this thing to stay on my funny looking, my funny shaped ear. It's not to be taken necessarily literally, but there could be other ways of compensation, okay? So if a master destroys an eye, the slave must go free as compensation, as equivalent compensation. Verse 27, another case. Uh, an owner who knocks out, again, strikes or hits the tooth of a male or female slave must let the slave go free to compensate for the tooth. So again, not literally the slave gets to return and retaliate and strike out the tooth of the master. Uh, theoretically, I suppose that could be a possibility, but here uh, an equivalent compensation of letting the slave go free uh, in compensation for what has been done to the slave um, is uh, prescribed here. Okay, so actually this text with striking and hitting and wounding and what the court should do all starts like 10 verses earlier, and I'm sparing you like the long text gives like several cases of what to do when somebody strikes somebody and they die, uh, and it's intentional, that would be murder. Uh, strike somebody and they die, but it's unintentional, what you do at that, in, that, in that scenario. So there's actually like 10 verses other here uh, in context of what to do, what Israel should do, what the law court within Israel should do to make sure that justice is done in the court of law and what justice looks like. Now, in the ancient Near East, <clears throat> eye for eye and tooth for tooth sounds brutal, but actually the idea is that this is the idea of lex talionis, we say. 
that the punishment must fit the crime. Justice. Compensation, the compensation must be equivalent to the, to the damage done. It is like a watershed in the ancient Eastern world from which the Old Testament comes. Because what would happen in the ancient Eastern world is that you got in a brawl, you fought somebody, you put somebody's eye out, guess what starts? Blood feud, right? Vendetta. All right, so you go back to your tribe, you get three guys, you go to his house and you knock out both his eyes and you kill his son. Mm. Well, guess what then he does? He goes, gets his clan, his tribe, he gets 12 guys, goes to your house, burns your house down, kills all your kids, rapes your wife, and kills your brother. <clears throat> and on and on it goes, back and forth. Just more brutality, more bloodshed, and what becomes like, like clan bloodshed and feud, right? <clears throat> So the idea here is to limit that kind of damage, that kind of blood feud idea, and ensure that justice, justice is done, and to limit, uh, to limit um, the, the return, the revenge, the retaliation, that, that that doesn't happen, and that it happens in a court of law, and you don't take justice into your own hands. Israel is like, in the Old Testament, is like eons ahead of its time in terms of um, justice and the justice system. Okay, let's move on to our next verse. So that was just the Old Testament quotation, verse Matthew 5, verse 38. Let's move on to what Jesus says then in Matthew 5, verse 39. So eye for eye, you've heard it said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Notice this is, an, this is an example of someone striking you. But it's done by an evil person. That is to say, it's done unjustly. It's done unjustly. And the word do not resist can mean don't stand up and take him to court. That is, somebody has done something to you that is worthy He's defamed you. He's dishonored you. He's struck you. You can take him to court, right? You can take her to court. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And Jesus says, yeah, an unjust person has done something unfair, unjust to you. And you can legally take that person to court. You can. But Jesus says to you, don't. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, strikes you, where the eye for eye, tooth for tooth would be a valid legal court prescribed rule, you could take him to court and you could turn around and strike him in the eye or you could, uh, uh, actually in Jesus' day, the Mishnah says, the, the Jewish, the laws of the day said, uh, you could get financial compensation. You could get a few days wage out of this, out of this guy for striking you, for insulting you and slapping you on the right cheek. But Jesus says, don't forgo your right. De-escalate the situation. Your primary impulse here is not to seek justice for yourself. That should not be your first impulse. Your first impulse in such a situation is to show mercy. Even turning the other cheek as a sign of forbearance. What? Mm -hmm. 
Isn't our first impulse when we are unjustly treated, right? I know, it's, I know it stirs inside of me when somebody treats me unjustly, unfairly. Right? I'm going to get them back. I'm mad. You've, you've insulted me. Like, you've done me wrong. And I'm going to get you right back. I'm going to nail you. And just, Jesus says, don't. Turn the other cheek. Show mercy. You could take him to court. You could. Don't. Forbear. Show mercy. So that's the first illustration. Verse 39. Turn the other cheek. Let's look at verse 40 as a second illustration of what this might look like. And if anyone wants to sue you, literally to take you to court, take you to, and judge you, have you condemned, and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. Now, in the first example, you have the chance to take someone to court, but you don't. In this instance, somebody has taken you to court unjustly. They've found a way to accuse you unjustly, and they're trying to get your shirt. <clears throat> So, why a shirt? Well, <clears throat> a shirt is kind of like this tunic, like this long, and it looks like a night, I don't know if you're watching The Chosen at all or any of that, but these long tunics. And then the coat or the cloak is the outer garment, kind of your jacket, your, your long jacket, something that keeps you warm at night. So you have this kind of this undershirt and then this overcoat or your cloak or your jacket. And the guy is suing you for your, your, your undershirt. And if he wins the case, guess what? What are you going home in? You're going home in your undergarment and your cloak. You're going home in shame and humiliation. And you have to wrap that thing around you to keep, to keep you from being utterly humiliated. Why a shirt? Well, I suppose this person could be, could be really poor and doesn't have a shirt and needs, needs one, and so he is wrangling to get your shirt. But it's more likely that he's out to get you, mm. all right? This is another instance of somebody trying to get at you, using the law court system to get at you in an unjust way, and trying to humiliate you. Completely unfair, right? Completely unjust situation. What's Jesus say to do? Now, the law says in Israel, if somebody falsely accuses you in court, whatever he threatened to do to you, this is Deuteronomy 19, whatever he threatened to do to you, you do to him. You get to do to him. So if he falsely accuses you in court and it's a murder charge, you can, if found out, if, he's, if, it, if, if they realize that he's falsely accused you, you can turn it around and he will be judged and, and, and put to death. Or if he has um, accused you of stealing, uh, if he has accused you of whatever you've, whatever you've been accused of, if he's falsely accused you in the court, he's committed perjury, you can turn around and do that to him. And that would be the case 
Here, you could turn around instead, humiliate him, take his shirt, and cause him to walk away humiliated and dishonored in his underwear, walking home embarrassed. What does Jesus say to do? Take justice into your own hands, fight for your own rights, which is legitimate. You do have rights. Justice is a, is a thing. Justice is real. Jesus says, hand your cloak over as well. Show mercy. Show forbearance. So show generosity. Show forgiveness. Mm. Completely de-escalates the situation. You may very well, if we took this literally, you would actually be going home in your underwear, dishonored and shamed. Jesus says, instead of turning the tables and gaining vindication for yourself in court, eye for eye, be wronged. Go a step further and give your cloak to the person showing kindness and mercy. Or in other words, love your enemy. Let's take a look at another illustration. There's actually four illustrations here. Jesus gives four examples. Let's go to verse 41 and look at our third example. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Remember that in Jesus' day, Judea was an occupied province of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire ruled and occupied the land Jesus lived in, and Jews deeply resented this tyrannical oppression and imperial rule, this occupation. Part of this occupation was that Roman soldiers, if you're walking down the road, Roman soldiers who have heavy equipment could commandeer you compel you, force you on the spot, no matter what you're doing, no matter where you're going, no how important you were, high standing or low standing as a Jew, could immediately stop you in your tracks and say, carry my gear for the next mile. No ifs, ands, or buts. Romans occupiers were deeply resented enemies and they did treat Jewish civilians very harshly at times, very demeaning behavior. So again, such conscription was considered deeply unjust, deeply unjust, but there was little to be done. You could fight and resist. There was no actual law court that you could appeal to in this case. The Romans were the law. What were you going to do? Be resentful? Burn with anger? Jesus says, go the extra mile. What? Go the extra mile. Go with them too. What's going on here? The idea here is to serve your unjust enemy and go beyond what is required of you in doing so. Serve even my enemy? Care for even my enemy? Even the Roman occupiers? 
be generous, even to them. They don't deserve it. Yep, that's what Jesus says to his disciples. Let's look at our final illustration, verse 42. Remember, Jesus says, do not resist the evil person. There's none of these situations is to a person who deserves it. All these people are either out to get you or they've done something to you and it's unfair. Um, And this verse is no different. This is the context. Give to the one who asks you. Give to the one who asks you could be translated maybe begs you. It's very general. Do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Again, context encourages us to see that we should be open to giving even to people who are evil, but ask us for something they need. We're not to give based on whether somebody is worthy or not. That's not the determiner, determiner here or the key to whether we should give or whether we don't give. How about if somebody wants to borrow from, maybe we've got a neighbor, right? Mr. Smith, who lives next door, who borrowed something 18 months ago and never returned it. Mr. Smith is a snarly, kind of grumpy old man. But he has come over, he has come over before, and you guys have talked and chewed the, chewed the cud a little bit and talked over the fence. And, but he's come over and he's asked to borrow something again. It's not that you couldn't raise the other thing that he borrowed that he never brought back and raise your concern, but Jesus does say, let him borrow that tool. Does he deserve it? No. Do it anyway. The principle is that we ought to be marked by a generous spirit, even toward those we may deem unworthy of such care. A generous spirit. All right. That's our text. We've walked, we've walked through it. Let's begin to process it a little bit. Some thoughts on a hard text. Some immediate thoughts, right? Number one, I would want to say first that this is about our personal ethics as disciples of Jesus, and this is not how our law courts should function. Our law courts in the U.S. should function and do justice. They should uphold justice and should implement justice. These are not rules for the U.S. law court system. These are rules and principles for the followers of Jesus and his disciples and the community that he has created. Our first impulse when we are wronged as disciples of Jesus is not to get, is to seek justice for ourselves. The first impulse is to show mercy and to be generous. Okay? The first impulse of our law court system should be justice. The first impulse for us as disciples of Jesus should be mercy and generosity. We'll get to why in just a moment. Number three, the principle here needs to be applied with wisdom. 
Jesus is not asking us to become doormats. And he's certainly not asking us to stay in a physically abusive relationship. If someone is chasing you down and threatening you with a knife, call 911, all right? Don't defer and forbear and roll over and let him strike you. Our Lord is not demanding that we never use the U.S. judicial system or ever call the police or ever protect ourselves or our loved ones from evil. Each instance needs to be taken on a case-by-case basis. So applying these things does take wisdom. And I would encourage you, if you're in a situation, whether you think these things might apply to your situation, seek, seek counsel in the community. Read the Word. Seek the Lord in prayer. Seek a trusted other believer that you believe is mature and wise and can help you walk through whether Jesus' words here apply to your situation. And yet that said, number four, we also need to be aware that we can easily, easily equivocate and find excuses to get ourselves out of Jesus' words here in just about any case or instance, right? So we need to know that about ourselves, that we easily self-deceive, we easily justify ourselves. We need to know that our primary first impulse out of our fallen nature is to seek justice for ourselves and to get that person back. We need to know that about ourselves. And it takes work and it takes the Holy Spirit work at work in our hearts so that the first impulse in our lives is the miracle of forgoing our rights and showing mercy and generosity even to those who don't deserve it, even to our enemies. So that's some immediate thoughts on what I consider to be a pretty difficult text. I have to admit, I have read this text over and over again. I've heard, look at the, look at the things that come out of this, the, the famous sayings that come out of this four verses, these four verses. Turn the other cheek, right? How many times have you heard that? That's part of English, American English. Turn the other cheek, uh, shirt off your back, uh, go the extra mile, right? Those things are all from this text. Those sayings are all from our text and have entered into American culture by virtue of the words of Jesus here. We've all heard them a hundred times, but I've never really sat down and really thought through and wrestled with this before until this week. And so what a, what a privilege to do so and realizing how difficult this actually is. Okay, in conclusion, how, how in the world and why would we do this? <clears throat> our, world is, our world is fallen and broken. Uh, it's a dog-eat-dog world out there. It's ruthless. It's self-centered. Loads of people who are selfish and hardened in heart who take advantage of us if we were to do this. How could we possibly survive in that world out there if we put these things into practice? Isn't this... Honestly, isn't this impractical? How can we endure a cruel world that will take advantage of us if we were to actually try to do these things? Well, I have a few thoughts in conclusion, three to be exact. Number one, first, these commands of Jesus are not naked, raw demand, right? They come in the larger context of the Gospel of Matthew. And in the Gospel of Matthew, in the first chapters of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is the long-awaited promised Messiah. 
the long-awaited ancient king who was promised centuries ago that God would send to right all wrongs, to restore the world, to heal it of all its sin, all its brokenness, all its injustice, all its evil, to heal it of death and restore it and resurrect it and transform it and bring about the long-awaited, promised, new creation kingdom. Jesus is that person. He's not just a teacher saying, he's not a Buddha, right? He's not a Buddha offering moral platitudes or a Stoic how to get through this, get through this cruel world with no ultimate solutions to this world. He is saying, I have brought the kingdom. I am bringing the long-awaited kingdom. I am bringing the new creation. I am Emmanuel, God, God with us. And in my own person and in my own work, I have launched God's new creation project. I'm making all things new. We live between the creation and new creation, right? And Jesus is the one that's restoring all things and bringing that new creation and he promises that for us. He promises to, to resurrect us and he promises to resurrect the world and give that inheritance to us forever. And what he's saying now is the way that I'm asking you to live now is the way that you live then. I'm asking you to be new creation people now in the present. I'm asking you to live as kingdom people now in the present. To bring the future now into this fallen and broken world where the primary impulse is not revenge and justice, but the primary impulse is mercy and love and generosity. Not that justice is done away with. Justice undergirds everything. The home of the new creation is the home of righteousness, the home of justice, says 2 Peter 3. But justice is not the primary impulse of the heart of God. Justice is not, is not the primary impulse of the heart of God. Generosity and mercy and love is what God first thinks of. When God is first, when God first stumbles or somebody stumbles into to Jesus, the first thing he thinks of is, is love. The first impulse of his heart is mercy. Why? Because that's the new creation. That's what it's going to be like when we are there. Generosity, kindness, love. Not revenge, not retaliation. It's not primarily even justice as the first impulse of God's heart. Though justice is real and justice is needed. And justice will be done. That brings me to number two. We can live this way because we live in light of the future. We can live this way now, the way Jesus calls us to, in light of the future. We know that this is a temporary dark world that we live in now. He's promised to make all things right and all things new. We can be wronged now because it will be righted then. 
We can be wronged now because it will be righted then. You don't have to take vengeance for yourself. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. That's Deuteronomy 32, and that's Romans 12. We can weep now, but we weep not in hopelessness, but in hope that someday the Lord Jesus will wipe away every tear and bring healing to us for every wrong that was done to us. We live in between the first and second comings of the Christ, and we wait in hope, knowing that this world of darkness is passing away and is only temporary. And we can endure because this period of time is a light, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, is a light momentary affliction which is producing for us or securing for us an eternal weight of glory forever. So we can live this way because we live in light of the future. And finally, and foremost, we can live this way, we can live this way because we are disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ who modeled this way of life in his own life. Jesus modeled mercy and generosity while being treated unjustly, ultimately demonstrated at the cross, where evil, unjust men condemned him, him, the innocent one, in a rigged trial, and sent him to experience one of the most horrific forms of execution ever devised by the cruel heart of man. And he went to that brutal cross willingly, out of great mercy, and out of lavish generosity, and out of profound love for them, his enemies, so that he might die in their place. He might die in their stead. The righteous for the unrighteous, the just for the unjust, the godly for the evil. That he might serve as a atoning sacrifice for them, that they may be forgiven and cleansed. You know what Jesus could have said? He could have looked at the cross and said, Forget it. I'm done. Let them rot. Let them go. They're so evil. They're so twisted. They're so unjust. They're so unworthy. They hate me so much. They hate God so much. They hate my Father in heaven so much. Let it be. Let justice be done. Let it go. Let the court have its way. Let God the Father come and judge at the end of time and just wipe them out. Aren't you glad, aren't I glad that he did not choose that way? What he chose in the midst of unjust injustice is to forbear, is to go silently to the cross, is to endure the shame in an act of love that forever changed the universe. And aren't we glad that he did? So we live this way because in our own lives, we want to live like he did. He is the model. He's the pattern. Christian, Christian means little Christ or follower of Christ. And so we model our lives after our Lord who demonstrated this way of life in his own.
And that, of course, leads us this morning, very great seg, sight way, into the Lord's Supper, where we celebrate his death for us. And so, Carol, would you come? Would you come and lead us in the Lord's communion?